Well, we set in motion, kind of started a few weeks ago now, where we're kind of slowly working our way up to Resurrection Sunday, up to Easter. And so we're going we're gonna to work through this text and kind of go at it slowly. And I challenge each of you to spend some time reading through each account in all four Gospels. Um, this week, you should be reading the Gospel of John. Um, we will share that on our Facebook and then also have it printed, I think, in the handout as well. I encourage you guys to spend some time reading through that together, reading it as a family, reading it with friends, work through each of those Gospels. My goal and my hope would be that by the time we get to Resurrection Sunday that you guys have worked through all of the Gospels twice. Last week I talked about the table and I, sh- I said that, that ultimately all of us have experienced immense hope and immense sadness and immense joy and beauty at a table. We've experienced the, the, the grace of, of someone forgiving us at a table. We've experienced the sorrow of some unwanted news. We've experienced the joy of beautiful news. And the table is something that's incredibly unique where all of us can experience something at a table. Maybe we've had the pain over and over again or we've had joy, but again, at a table, it's unique. So what we're going to do in light of resurrection and in the belief that as we've challenged, kind of prayed about as a staff and leadership team, uh, the desire to have there be present day implications to resurrection meaning that it's not just some future hope out there. So we wanted to, to create space where you and I and all of us can kind of work together around a table and experience the grace of God. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to have our Easter services, and then the week after Easter on Sunday, we're going to give you guys a chance to sit around a table. Well, not one table, lots of tables. We're going to bring in a bunch of tables in here, and we're going to encourage you as Rev, we are going to invite all the nonprofits we partner with to bring um, family members and friends to come and enjoy a pancake feed with us. And we are asking that each of you would bring a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, um, someone that you keep coming across at a coffee shop that you would invite someone. And the idea would be that we as a community would experience God's grace around a table with a number of different people the way the kingdom was intended to be so, with different walks of life and where you could sit at the table with each other. Yeah, we'll serve. We're all going to have to take part in making a bunch of pancakes and eggs and everything else. But the desire would be that you would serve and then you'd be able to sit down and you'd be able to share the gospel. You'd be able to share the hope and the joy of Jesus Christ. You'd be able to enter in relationally with people that you may not normally be comfortable talking to or entering into. So Rev is going to invite all the nonprofits we partner through with all our Surf Sundays, a number of them, and then you guys are charged with inviting a friend or a roommate or a neighbor or a coworker, someone to come and join you to share in food together and to sit around the table. So we're going we're gonna to do that in light of resurrection, trying to create space. We'll tell you more about that as the weeks come. But last week I challenged you guys, every single one of you, when we came to the table, we spent a good amount of time, it was a decently long sermon, talking about communion and the cup that comes. And instead of diving back into that, there's so much there, I would encourage you to just go back and listen to that if you missed it. But um, I challenged you to spend this week getting your heart in a right spot challenge you to spend this week to, to look at the, the bitterness that was in your heart or the unforgiveness or the, the, un, the, unre, the unrepentant sins that you have to deal with those things so that when you come to the table this week, when we take communion together, which we will, you could come in a worthy way, the way the Apostle Paul calls us to. But before we get to that, there's this unique little story, a little bit of history in the middle of this table, in the middle of everything that's coming down where Jesus is setting up his new covenant like we talked last week and he's, he's showing how his blood and his body is this new relationship that, that replaces the Passover lamb and he is the true lamb of God. In the middle of this story is this unique, unique interaction with the disciples and so I need a volunteer. You don't have to talk. Just raise your hand if you want to volunteer real quickly. Someone raise your hand. Come on. All right, perfect. Kelsey, you can sit right there. You're close enough. You can stay right there. Thank you, Kelsey. Okay, 
So Kelsey doesn't know what she's volunteering for, so that's good because I had someone planted in case no one volunteered. It was my poor wife. But either way, um, in the middle of this story, in the middle of Jesus setting up the Passover meal, and by setting it up, meaning he actually like blew it up and started something drastically new, this beautiful thing happens, and we don't actually get it in any of the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We only get it in the, in the gospel of John. And this is, 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 is this story that we can understand that timeline-wise, timeline Jesus had sat down, they're at the meal, they probably experienced the first cup, because there are four cups that go through the Passover, the first cup of watered-down wine, and they maybe even spent some of the time dipping the bread into the bitter, bitter herbs. And we get from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, this little altercation that happens between the disciples. The disciples start arguing about who is greatest among them. This isn't the first time they've had this argument, but it is the last time they have it, actually. And they're having this argument about who, who is greatest among them, and Jesus has this, this quick teaching where he tells them, look, that's what this world worries about. The world you're in and the, and the, the kings and all those people, they, whirl, they worry about that. You are not to do so. And Jesus does one of the most ridiculous things to date in history. Actually, it's never been repeated in Greco-Roman and Jewish history. This has never happened again where a superior has washed the feet of an inferior person. Never happened. This is the one instance in which we have this. And so Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, so he's just in his undergarment, and then he, he puts a towel to him, which is, for us, it's like, oh, okay, neat. He's, he's, you know, he's showing a lot of skin. Sounds good. He's amongst his friends. No worries. But, but actually, the way he's dressed, guys, is the way a slave dresses. When he removed his outer garment and fa fastened the towel to him, himself, that is how a slave dresses. And so what's unique about this is I s sat there and tried to wrestle my head going, what is a, a modern-day context contextual thing that we experience like the foot washing? There really isn't anything. In fact, the only thing I could think of that would be slightly awkward would be if you guys, I invited you over to my house, say, hey, let's have some dinner. And you came in and you guys took your shoes off and you're sitting down at the table. I'm like, okay, hold on before we have a meal. And I brought a bowl over and started washing each of your hands in the bowl. Like that's the only thing that I could think, but that doesn't make sense. See, in their culture and in their day, washing the feet was a normal thing. In fact, it would, have, it would have happened almost every time they sat down for a meal. Again, the way that they would recline at the table, the table was not high, it was super low, so dirty feet was kind of gross. And they had open-toed sandals, and they, had, they, had, they would walk in all the dirt, and it's just dusty everywhere, so their feet are just dirty. Even if they had bathed earlier that day, their feet are dirty. And so for us, we don't understand that. We just think feet are gross, right? Like, oh, man, I you know, hope I have this, you know, athlete's foot thing I'm working on or these warts or, the, you know, I don't like the way the hair grows in or I haven't, some of you are like, man, I haven't checked my toenails all winter. You know, who needs to, right? But we have this, we have this weird cultural thing where we think like feet are just gross. In their day, it was common, but here's the thing. It was common amongst the lowliest and lowliest and lowliest of slaves. In fact, a couple things that are really interesting that I didn't know, peers did not wash one another's feet. Peers would not do this except for the occasion of intimacy and love. Not, not relational like, hey, happy Valentine's love. Ooh, no, no, no. Like, like love, intimacy love, like brotherly love or, or sisterly love where you, you had this value of the other person, but it was so rare for peers to do it with each other. In fact, uh, some Jews insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash feet. Now, you need to hear that. Jewish people said, look, if you are... 
if you are of Jewish descent, as a, of a child of Abraham, even as a slave, you shouldn't be required to wash the feet of another person. That should only be accepted by Gentile slaves. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? The attire that Jesus was wearing to do this was actually viewed, looked down on by both Gentiles and Jews. This, guys, this has got to, it's got to wrap in here. The disciples whose feet he was about to wash include, and this is what blew me away, include Judas's feet. Now, I'm sure you've heard this story a million times. I'm sure you've experienced this and someone's talked about it or if you spend any time around the church. But you gotta look at this. Now, we don't get this in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but we know that this happened here, okay? But if Matthew and Luke and, and Mark, everyone kind of has their, their, their view and how they're doing. Matthew's trying to display Jesus as the Messiah King, as the King of all things. Now, I can't imagine the shock that was felt by the disciples when Jesus stepped up from the table to do something that a slave in a house would normally do. And I, you and I were like, oh, okay, so you wash some feet, that's kind of crazy. No, this was, this was looked down on. In fact, it would have been okay for one of the disciples to get up and start washing people's feet because it needed to happen. Remember, they're at someone else's house and they're upstairs, it's just them, so no one else is in the room. So there wasn't the slave in place to wash their feet. And Jesus does this on the tail end, on the heels of them arguing about who's greatest. Jesus does this a few hours before he's arrested. Jesus does this maybe 60 minutes before he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane because of the fear and excruciating pain he knows he's about to endure. Like, take it in that context, guys. We don't have a, a modern-day example most of us would just struggle with feet washing like, because of our own idiosyncrasies. But Jesus steps as the Messiah King, as the Son of God, as the one that, who walked this entire earth, never sinned. The one that these disciples had experienced him create food out of nothing, quiet storms when they're raging. The guy that, that they have seen so much amazing things that no person could combat him verbally. Theologically, he squandered and, and swatted down every single attack. In fact, in verse 3 of John 13, it says this. It says, Jesus, knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. Knowing that he was the Son of God and that God had given him everything in his hands. Jesus could have easily stopped Judas from betraying him. He could have pulled out a sword and won and conquered every single thing. Knowing all of that, he stepped up from the table and he did what was reserved for the lowest of lowest slaves to his disciples. I'm pretty confident that if any one of those disciples got up, John got up to start washing people's feet, I bet all the other disciples would, oh, whoa, 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 protest. What are you doing? This is, this is, this is offensive. What are you doing? Stop that. But Jesus, Jesus rises from the table. Gets up, removes his outer garment, takes the look of a slave as the Messiah King willingly takes the look of a slave to wash his disciples' feet. Now, why would Jesus do that? Right when he's in the middle of implementing the new covenant with his blood and his body, talking about everything we talked about last week, why would he, in the middle of being established as a new kingdom, why does Jesus do it? Well, the Gospel of John actually gives us that answer, but before we do that, 
I'm going to wash Kelsey's feet. Which is fitting, Kelsey, considering I think the first time we met, you almost drowned in a river. So <laughs> come on up here. It's a story for another time. I don't. I'm sorry. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wash Kelsey's feet. Now, I, I want to do, she had no idea I was doing this, and that's kind of why I was hoping for the shock of it all. But here's, here's, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to wash Kelsey's feet. It's not a very long process, but I want to do something different. First off, don't you dare assume, oh, Bren, you're so holy washing Kelsey's feet. That's not why I'm doing this. Secondly, don't assume Kelsey's some awesome person, although she is, she is really awesome, but because she's getting her feet washed. But what I want to do is instead of, Instead of doing that, it's going to be dead silent, awkward in here. Maybe the murmurs of some beautiful little kids, right? But as you hear the water dripping, as you hear me, as you, as you think about me washing Kelsey's feet, I want, I want you to just try and, if you can at all, not think about the Valentine's cards that you got written for your little Valentine later on, right? Like, put that stuff aside. If you can just put yourself in the lack of shoes of the disciples, where they're sitting at a table ready to take a meal that they've been a part of every year of their life. And Jesus gets up from the table, removes his outer garment, fastens a towel to himself, and gets down to wash Kelsey's feet. Now, my bet is some of you, if you you did what what we asked and challenged you last week, where you said, look at your heart, my bet is some of you realize in your heart there was a lot of ugliness there. Like God had to do a decent amount of work in you this last week where you had to realize you had to let go of some bitterness. You had to let go of some unforgiveness. He called you to repent of some things because he's saying, look, I, I, have, I have bought that with my blood. My bet is, is that some of you can picture yourself in the shoes. Maybe you need to picture yourself as John or Peter or James. Maybe some of you realize that you're Judas sitting in there. You've been betraying and betraying and betraying you know, what's, you know what's unique? Is every single one of these disciples walk away from Jesus in just a few hours. One of them we get, it's probably Mark, runs away naked, right? Like we know, like, like they're bailing on Jesus. And they, 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 they leave him, this, this Messiah king who just hours before he's arrested was in the most humbly and lowest of places washing their feet some of you, I, I think you need to just close your eyes. I don't, we don't have any conversation. We don't know what Jesus says. We have one conversation with Peter, and we'll get there in a second. He's the only one that speaks. Good old Peter, right? But we don't know when he was washing, if he was praying for them. I don't know if he was telling them things that he loved about them, encouraging them. I don't know if he was pleading for God to keep just one of them to stay, knowing what he was about to walk. We have no idea what he's saying. And so as I wash Kelsey's feet, my encouragement is that you close your eyes, you let Jesus wash yours. What would he say to you? After this last week that you've had, what would he look at you? What is he saying? He'd look you up in the eyes as he's washing your feet in the most humblest of places. What would he say? What is he saying? I can tell you right now, he's not shaming you because he, he washes Judas's feet and he knows he's the one that betrays him. In fact, Judas at this point had already sold him out. He'd already taken the money. And he still drops down on his knees and washes Judas' feet along with the other 11. So I'm going to do is I'm going to mute the mic. We're going to be quiet, and it's just going to be silent here. And you're going to maybe hear some water. I don't know if you can back there. But I want you just to picture Jesus grabbing your feet as filthy as they are, 
as dirty as they are, and just, and just washing those feet and speaking words of grace and love and abundance and life because that's who Jesus is into you. Maybe he has a conversation with you about the choices that you made this last week saying, you're, you, you're not this. My, my blood is paid for that. Stop running back to that. But either way, I don't, we don't know what he would say. So I just want to ask you guys, be quiet. I'll, I'll wash Kelsey's feet. I'll close it in prayer, and then we'll get back into why Jesus does this. Heavenly Father, it is a unique and a humbling experience to know that in the middle of such great chaos, at this nice, quiet meal with your your 12 disciples, which your gospel, John, tells us that you loved so much, that you got down as the Messiah, as the King, and you washed. Such a unique and beautiful thing, God. May we, may we take from this in a way that doesn't just be amazed or awe of what you're doing. May we actually apply it the way that you call us to in the rest of this gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel of John goes on in verse 13 and tells us why Jesus did this. He didn't do it because their feet were dirty, although they were. He didn't even do it necessarily to show him just how to serve, but he did it in the most beautiful way. See, Jesus must wash us if we are to belong to him. We must. He must wash us. He has already washed us in the calling us to belong to him, John 15, 3. What we need day by day is a regular washing of those parts of ourselves, our personalities and bodies, which gets dusty and dirty. What's unique and beautiful about this is that what Jesus was doing wasn't just washing their feet. He was, he was displaying that which was about to come just hours away. In fact, John 13, it says, verse 13, it says, do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus says this, do you, do you, understand, do you understand what I have just done? You call me teacher and Lord. You call me rabbi and Messiah, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your rabbi, your teacher, and your Messiah, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, a slave, a bondservant, is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger or prophet greater than the one who sent him. See, Jesus, in the, in the, in the middle of displaying and, and setting up his new covenant before his people, he gets down and washes the feet of his disciples as a foreshadowed event, as a, as a beautiful imagery and looking forward to the washing that comes from his blood. My bet is if I had told you all last week that, hey, next week we're washing feet, we're all going to spend some time washing feet. Well, one of the three things would have happened from each of us. One is you wouldn't have shown up, right? You're like, I ain't getting out of time for that. That's gross. I'm out of here. The other one is a bunch of you would have shown up, but you would have done the best stinking pedicure you possibly could Saturday night. So when you showed up, your toes are glowing. You know, it's like perfect feet. Everything's trimmed up in this place because you don't want anyone to have to experience the grossness of your feet, right? Or maybe the third one is you would have shown up and said, well, this is what I got. These are my feet. This is the way it is. Let them be washed. And what's unique about each of those positions is one is the, the person that's, that's running from it is like Judas. 
And he liked the idea of having his feet washed, but he wasn't really seeing the imagery or accepting what Jesus was doing. And the person that maybe would have dolled up their feet like crazy is, is, is Peter. We love him, right? Peter says as we have this little altercation with Peter down in verse, in verse uh, 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, uh, oh wait, sorry, up a little bit for verse 7. He came to, came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Are you going to wash my feet, Lord? Like, Really? You're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answers him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will. Speaking, this is my word, speaking afterward, meaning when Jesus is crucified, he will understand it and raise him from the dead. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And I bet he was saying that with that same gusto that Peter said, all sorts of things that got his foot in the mouth, right? My Lord will never wash my feet. This is unacceptable. How, I, how these other brothers of mine here have let you do this, Jesus? I am much better than that. I would never, ever let you steep to that level with me. He's contesting it. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you're not my disciple. You have no share with me in the inheritance of God. You have no right with me if I do not wash you. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. (laughs) Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was about to betray him. And that is why he said not all of you are clean. See, Jesus has this unique setting. Peter is contesting it. I don't, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you wash my feet? Jesus says, look, I, I don't wash you. You have no part with me. See, this feet washing, there's, there's so many beautiful things we can take from it, but the biggest and the most pointed and the most incredible point Jesus is making is without the covering of his blood, without the washing of him, you have no part in Jesus' kingdom. You have no part in God's kingdom. You have no hope, no life. It takes his cleansing work for you to be a part. So the feet washing is just a, is just a small, menial thing to point to the big, huge thing that he's about to explain through the cup of his covenant we talked about last week. Second thing that's unique out of this is that Jesus tells us in the middle of this beautiful teaching about who's greatest, he steps in instead of just saying, look, you guys are all small peons compared to me. Like, he doesn't say any of that. He just displays for them what he expects of them and in turn expects of you and me. So some of you tonight on your Valentine's Day, you need to wash your, your date's feet. I'm just kidding. Maybe you could, Okay. But Jesus is displaying an act of service. And here's, here's what's unique about this. In the middle of defining his kingdom, in the middle of defining how it is to be from here on out, how, how he is taking place of the Passover lamb, he displays what his kingdom is to look like. And his kingdom is to look very different than they expected. It is to look in a way we're willing to get down on our hands and knees in the dirt and clean the feet of another person. See, here's, here's what's unique about this. So the disciples walked with Jesus and experienced everything. They heard over and over and over again about Jesus confronting them because this wasn't the first time they said who was greatest. This isn't the first time they argued about where they could sit and Jesus had taught over and over and over again. It is not about position. It is about who you are under. And my fear is, is that there's a lot of us in here who are so full of pride we have so much arrogance on us. We have so much, so much of a proud spirit that we're justifying it. In fact, you know how I can know this? 
Galatians 5, 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the freedom that you and I have gained in Christ in the spilling of his blood calls us to serve one another. Now here's my fear. My bet is there's a number of us that are really, really, really good at serving other people. Right? We love serving other people. We're like the people that are here setting up chairs, and we're setting down this, and, and everything's good, but then when it comes to us needing something, we're too proud to ask for help. You, you know what that is? You know what being a person that's willing to serve and serve and serve but not be served? That's masking pride. That's hypocrisy. You're, you're using your ability to serve other people as an excuse to hide behind the fact that you're too proud to receive the grace and gift of someone else. That's pride. One of the scariest verses is God says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Oh, maybe he'd be showering you with more grace. May we be a people that receive his grace that he's lavished on us and not sitting in some form of opposition because we are too proud. So my assumption is this last week you guys worked through all of the, the things that God has maybe challenged in you. I, I, I hope you did. You, maybe God revealed that you, there was a relationship that was strained that you needed to confess. You've been angry with someone that's, that, that's in your heart and you've had to confess that. Or maybe God just worked in your own heart of releasing some of the bitterness that you've been carrying. But either way, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's cleansing you. And the Apostle Paul says that when you come to the communion table in Corinthians 11, it says come in a worthy manner. Step in in a worthy manner. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. One of the ways that you can understand if you're walking in a worthy manner is how you serve. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before, right? You've heard, oh, well, you know, we've got to be willing to wash some feet. Let's do it. Again, there is no context that makes sense for us, but what Jesus did was ridiculous. It was, it was so unheard of. And then he says, oh, I've given you an example. You do this too, people. You, you want to follow me, then this is what it means to be great in my kingdom. In fact, if you just read 13 to 17 in John, he talks about his kingdom in a very unique and beautiful way and just talks about what it, it looks like to be in his kingdom and is flipping the upside-down standards of what we believe in this world. And he's saying, you guys have got it wrong. To, to be a part of my kingdom, you must serve. You must be willing to do the menial task. My assumption, too, is that some of you um, have been burned by spiritual leaders. You understand that this, isn't, this is Jesus doing it, so a lot of denominations or churches have tried to make it about how the, the pastors are the ones that have to, to wash the feet of the, of the individuals in the church, and that's, that's just a, a ritual. That's not actually what this was done. In fact, we have no other ceremonial cleansing of washing feet that happens. We do get Peter making reference to the fact that others wash others because I'm sure that this made a huge, huge lasting impact on Peter. But some of you right now, you don't even trust, you don't even trust the authenticity of that. You're like, I've never experienced that. All leadership in my life has always just been there to lord over me and to control me and to, to, to hurt me. And I've just been burned and burned and burned by that. And I just want to say right now, like, as, as your pastor, as a pastor, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive, forgive us for displaying the pride, the proud way of being a pastor as opposed to the humble way, the way that Jesus calls us to. But this isn't just for spiritual leaders. This is for all. But I will say this. 
your issue with spiritual leadership cannot be compartmentalized, and I promise you, you have issues with God and his leadership of you. Again, Jesus was and is the Messiah King who stepped into the form of a slave. It's really interesting. It's a unique picture, right? Jesus, who is on the throne with God, throne room of God in the highest spot, all comforts and, and everything he wants in his life, leaves that spot to be born to a person whom he created to live a perfect life, only to be tempted and, and feel every bit of pain that all of us have felt in this perfect, in his perfect life, and then to be crucified for yours and my sins. He left his place of comfort and became the lowest of low so that he could take the lowest of low and bring them to his place of comfort. Some of you, you're too proud. You want to come take a part of communion and you, you see, all you see is how you deserve and you deserve and what you've done and what you get and why me and why me and it's all about you. Jesus says the same thing he says to you that he said to his disciples. <laughs> you want to see what's great. You want to see what the greatness in my kingdom looks like. Follow my example. Do the lowest of lows. N.T. Wright says it this way. The true, a truly Christ-like person is known by the ease and sponta- spontaneity with which he or she does the little annoying messy things. The things which in the ancient world the slave would do. The things which in our world we always secretly hope someone else will do so we don't have to waste our time to demean ourselves. In the middle of his new covenant setting up, Jesus steps from his table, squashes the disciples once again with the fact that, hey, you guys, you want to be great in my kingdom, this is what you do. And then he shows them. And what's so beautiful about this is that it's a beautiful picture display of what we need from him. Without him washing us through his blood, we're hopeless. Without Jesus going to the cross, being crucified in place of us, taking on the wrath of God, we have no hope and no place at the table. Because Jesus does that, he moves forward. I talked last week about the conditions of the covenant, and we talked extensively about it, but I said it this way. Jesus took on the conditions of the covenant. I mean, he took on, he, he put himself in place of everything that was expected to fall through on the covenant so that you and I could be received unconditionally. See, Jesus did away with, um, he did away with the, with the Passover meal. He resolved the tension of does God love us unconditionally or does he love us conditionally? Meaning, does he love us because we follow his commands or does he just love us because of who we are? And the answer is both. See, on the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the curse for breaking the covenant. So when you and I fail at following through on the covenant, Jesus has taken that on, the curse, on the cross through spilling his blood. Meanwhile, all of us who have disobeyed the covenant, we are the ones that deserve the curse of that covenant because we disobeyed it through faith in Christ, receive the reward that Jesus deserved for keeping the covenant. That's the, that's, the, that's the new covenant that we receive. We receive it not because of anything we do. Some of us still want to be the ones that clean our feet up as best we can before we show up for the cleansing. 
if I can just do this and this and this, then God will accept me. No, no, you don't understand. He's going to take you when you're at the grossest and the darkest of places, and he's going to redeem you from there and breathe life into you from there. A revised Passover meal. I said last week that communion is the central act of Christian worship, meaning there's nothing actually holy in communion itself. What is holy is that Christ is the bread and blood of his life for us. What's holy is what it symbolizes. It's us worshiping what he has done for us in the past and celebrating and worshiping what he's doing in us and through us for the future. Jesus filled the conditions of the covenant so that we could be received unconditionally. Jesus' perfect life earned the blessing and his death fulfilled the curse so we could receive the blessing. So what we're going to do is uh, the band's going to come up and we're going we're to take communion in a second here. Um, we're going to actually bring the communion up front here and we're gonna, you guys can just come up two lines, come grab it when you want. They're going to just play some music um, with no words and then after they're done with... Uh, that and everyone's gotten their communion, um, I'm going to come back up and we'll take it together. Um, but communion is, is, is this beautiful, beautiful thing that I think a lot of times we've made so much smaller and so much more insignificant. Again, when I talked last week specifically about what he was able to do in the cross and, and for the work for us, what he did for us in that, it, it makes us understand specifically how great of a thing this is. So when I talk about us loving God with all our strength, mind, and soul, or us wanting to desire to please him or to be a part of his life, we desire to obey God now because of what he's done for us. We see at what cost Jesus paid for everything to keep the conditions. So for us now, to, for me to serve God, for me to want to get down and be, do the menial task, it's something I desire to do, not out of duty or obligation, but because I see what Jesus went through just so that I could have the ability to do so. See, I, I, serve, I serve not because I'm awesome. I serve because he is. I get, a, I get a partake in communion not because of anything I did, but because of what he did. In fact, what's beautiful about this is because of him spilling his blood, because of him letting his body be beaten and tormented and destroyed, we now get to partake in it. It wasn't anything we did. It was what he did for us. And so my, my encouragement, my challenge to you is as, as you get ready to come up and you start grabbing this, take it back to your seat, spend some time praying to God, thanking him for what, not only what he's done for you through everything that he's already done, which is amazing. And if you think, maybe just put yourself in the shoes of John or James or Peter or Judas or any one of those people and realize that just hours before he's about to endure the most painful thing ever physically and the worst thing, the entirety of the wrath of God poured out for you and me on him, he gets down and loves us and serves us. I feel like I'd be pretty distracted if I knew what was coming. He's an hour away from sweat and blood. He's so stressed out and, and scared of what's coming. He's, he's an hour away from that and he's, he's serving us. He's loving us. So when we partake in communion, you do so in a worthy manner. The Apostle Paul tells us to, to, to search our heart, to look at this. Don't just come at this and just say, oh, I, I like some stale bread and some old grape juice. Like, that's what I want today. No, approach this knowing that you're approaching a, a table that, that cost everything from Jesus Christ so that we could be everything in Christ and God.
So we're going to give you a chance to come take it, grab it, take it back to your seat, and then we'll take it together. At, at a table where Jesus uh, had shocked them immensely by getting up, removing his outer garment, and getting down and serving uh, his disciples, loving them. Uh, he does another shock because at the at common meal, and we talked about this last week, when they're doing the Passover meal, the host, and in this situation there was no host, so Jesus was at the center of the table. He would stand up, and he would usually grab from him, in front of him the cup of redemption. It was the third cup of wine that they would take. It was watered down, and, and it was signifying that the, the redemption that they would experience over the Passover meal, looking back at what had happened and, and what place was there. And Jesus stands up, and instead of, instead of Going the normal suit of what he would display, he grabs some bread. And he says, look, this isn't, this isn't the, the, the lamb anymore. This isn't to signify the freedom that you have from the unleavened bread that the Israelites experienced by being out in the wilderness, out from underneath Egyptian rule. No, he says instead in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing, giving thanks, he was thanking God for the fact that his body is about to be broken. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and the cup was the cup of redemption cup where they understood that redemption came from what God has done, only they didn't see that the redemption was not just to be out from slavery of Egypt to Rome. The redemption now comes at a greater cost, cost of a perfect Savior, perfect Messiah, a King, a holy God in man, taking on the sacrifice of every single one of us. And he took that cup, and again, giving thanks for the fact that his blood is about to be spilled on yours and my behalf, and the disciples that he's sitting in the room. He gave thanks again. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then what I think is one of the most provocative verses ever, Jesus says to his disciples just after he's instituted the new covenant, he's now said, I am no longer... In, you are no longer to celebrate the Passover lamb. I am the lamb of God, and you will celebrate my blood and my body, which is broken. No, bon no bone was broken, but was broken for you, tortured and tormented, spit on by the very people that I created. And blood was spilled. And then he says this to his disciples. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my, in, in my Father's kingdom. See, when we take of this blood, we don't just celebrate the fact that, that we now have freedom and hope in what Jesus has done for us, but we celebrate in the fact that Jesus, our Messiah, our King, the servant, the one who got down to the lowest of places for us, is longing to take part in this celebration, this feast with us in his Father's kingdom. So we don't only look to what he's done, but we look to where he's taking us and where we're hope is. Our hope is his new kingdom. Our hope is everything being new, not just us in his blood. Those of us that have professed 
and believe, we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior of our life. We don't hope in today. We hope in his kingdom, which changes today for you and I. We're just thinking, I don't know how to, how to thank God for what he's done, but we've put two songs specifically in place right now that are us to sing with the fact that we are actually thanking God for what he's done for us. And so my, my encouragement to you, my, my challenge to you would be that you wouldn't just thank you, God, for that cracker bread that was a little bit stale and that old grape juice. It's awesome. Like you would, you would, your heart would cry out for the fact that you have hope because of what he endured for you. You have hope because he willingly walked to the cross. You have hope because he was torn to pieces, because he was, his blood was spilled. And so when we say thank you, we say thank you not as some obligated child, but we say thank you as a co-heir to the kingdom in Christ Jesus' in, in Christ Jesus's blood. We say thank you to a God that deserves more than that. So my challenge is that you would, you would stand, you would scream, you wouldn't care what you sound like, you would just let your heart cry out in thankfulness, in gratitude. Because we should be a people marked with gratitude when we see and experience how much God did for us in spite of who we were before that. Pray, Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. It's so easy to just say thank you. I tell my kids to say thank you after everything. Uh, those words seem so empty at times, God. But when I picture my Savior spilling his blood so that I can be washed clean, thank you just doesn't seem to suffice, Lord. So I pray, God, as we cry out to you, as we sing to you as, as one, as a family that has been redeemed by your blood, looking forward to the time we can drink of the fourth cup with you of hope, looking forward to the time when we can experience you and all things new, God, I pray that we would be thankful, that it wouldn't just be today, that it wouldn't just be this moment, but we'd be thankful. Our life would be marked by gratitude. And we would not only say it, God, but you would see it in our words, you'd see it in our lives, you'd see it in the way we served, like you, Messiah, King, Servant, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.